In our series called Encounters with Jesus from the Gospel of John, we come today to a well-known story about the woman who was caught in adultery. There's been some debate about whether this story should be in the Bible, or at least right here in the Gospel of John. And the reason for this is that many of the earliest manuscripts don't include or include this elsewhere, like in the Gospel of Luke. Many of the church fathers did not recognize it. And this is why that you will have, if you have a copy of the NIV or of the ESV version, you'll read something like this. The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not include this section. But some well-respected commentators like William Hendrickson believes that there ought to be no attempt to remove this. He reasons that it fits very well with the context and that Jesus is pictured uh, entirely consistent with his character, that he came not to condemn but to save. The Apostle John had a disciple by the name of Papias, and he knew this story and expounded upon it in his writings. And so Hendrickson believes that it cannot be proven with any degree of finality that it should not be included in the gospel accounts. And nothing in it is in conflict with the rest of Scripture or the apostolic spirit. But what I find most fascinating is that Augustine said that this uh, passage was removed from the gospel accounts because people feared that it would be misinterpreted. Misinterpreted that Jesus somehow was being lenient on adultery, which I do not understand Jesus doing at all. In fact, I see the opposite. Nevertheless, we are going to look at this well-known story that I believe is of apostolic origin. So I'd like you to turn to John chapter 7. We'll be reading from verse 53 to John chapter 8, verse 11. Hear the word of God. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning they came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. That ends our reading from this text. Well, we're going to see in this text how 
the religious authorities who hated Jesus tried to trick him with this question. And then we're going to see how he confronted the guilt of these men, and then he dealt with this woman with great compassion and grace. And then we're going to see the implications of these truths for our lives today. Now, prior to the reading of this text, in chapter 7, Jesus is in Jerusalem celebrating a feast, and he's teaching in the temple courts. And there were some men that the Pharisees sent to arrest Jesus, but they came back empty-handed. And so we're told that everyone went home that night. Jesus, however, goes to spend the night in the Mount of Olives. And then early the next morning, Jesus goes back to the temple courts to teach. And as usual, many people came to hear him and he sat down to teach them. But these scribes and Pharisees had been busy all night. They did not give up. They were busy devising an evil conspiracy. And so the first point that we're to see from our text is the baited trap to shame Jesus. The baited trap to shame Jesus. In verses 2 through the first half of verse 6, we read that while Jesus was teaching in the temple, the scribes and the Pharisees brought this woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they placed her in their midst. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says that we are to stone such women. What do you say? And of course they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now in the time of Jesus, Jewish legal procedures were extremely careful and judicious. And this was particularly true in the case of any crime punishable by death. Adultery was one of those crimes. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, it says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now this law was instituted by God when the nation of Israel was a theocracy and it was designed to protect the sanctity of marriage and sexual purity within marriage. However, there's very little evidence that it was carried out in Jesus' day because, as you can imagine, it was unpopular, but even more so, the Roman government was in control, and this was seen as infringing upon their rights, their exclusive rights that they claimed the authority to impose capital sentences. And also, according to the law of Moses, it was necessary for a couple to be caught in the act by two or three witnesses. So the witnesses would have to be there in place in advance and their testimony would have to be identical in every respect. And so it seems rather evident to many commentators that these religious rulers must have known ahead of time or arranged this liaison. And we notice that they dragged the woman in front of everyone. They didn't produce the man who was also involved, who would be equally guilty according to God's law. Now, either this man got away, or they let him get away, or worse, they colluded with the man to seduce the woman for 
this purpose. Now, women back then, as you probably know, were treated not very well. It was a double standard. Uh, They were not considered equal with the men. And men, especially who had some prominence, were often given a wink and a nod uh, when they were found in sin. These religious leaders were using this woman's sin and God's law as a weapon to trap Jesus. And furthermore, if there were witnesses, indeed, when this sin occurred, they should have stopped it if they really cared about the people and God's laws. They would have prevented it by uh, stopping it right there and not seeking to exploit it. And so these leaders had self-righteous evil in their hearts. They were not interested in the intrinsic merits of this case and still less in assuring justice be done. Now, there was considerable genius in this conspiracy. See, the intention was to trip Jesus up, to discredit him. They felt like there were only three options that he could choose. One would be to urge forgiveness and grace, which then would be seen as setting aside God's law, or he could take his stand with the law, calling for the woman's condemnation and execution, but that would be a compromise to his teaching of grace. And the third option would be that he couldn't make up his mind, and Jesus would be seen as not very wise or fickle or unsteady. So we see how the rulers have wickedly used this woman and her sin to set this trap for Jesus. And they didn't have to bring her out in public. All of this displays a total disregard for this woman and using her merely as a pawn to trick and to trap Jesus. Now, in the second half of verse 6 through the first half of verse 9, we come to Jesus' response. And here we're going to see, number two, the shame of the scribes and Pharisees in the presence of Jesus. Now, Jesus could have refused to comment or make a decision at all. He was not under compulsion to do so. As a matter of fact, he could have said, well, this is for the courts to decide, and he would have been correct. But he probably knew that if he said this, the woman would not fare very well. He had compassion on this woman, and he knew what was going on. He was not fooled by these circumstances or appearances. He was not deceived by the religious talk of these leaders. Well, we see in the second half of verse 6, Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, throughout history, church history, there's been a lot of theories about what did Jesus write? You know, did he write something or was he just scribbling in the ground? This is the only time that Jesus is described as writing anything in the Gospels. Well, here are a few of the theories that I've read. He was writing down the Ten Commandments. He was writing down the specific sins of these religious leaders. Or he was writing down what he was going to say. Or he was writing down certain verses. And one that's suggested is Exodus 23.1. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Or he may have been writing their names in the earth. Alluding to a passage in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 17.13 that says... 
Those who turn away from you, Lord, shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord. Well, we just don't know what was written by Jesus. But maybe it was just to delay for a little bit. But in this delay, they thought that it opened up for them to clamp down on Jesus and to press him all the more for an immediate answer that would incriminate him. And so we read in verse 7 and 8, And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. Now Jesus' answer here is brilliant. He didn't decide against the law, but he's saying basically anyone who's sinless should cast the first stone. And he's referring to Deuteronomy 17.7, which says, the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So the witnesses of the crime must be the first to throw the stone. But by Jesus saying to them, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, he's saying that they must not be participants in any way in the crime itself. He doesn't mean witnesses of a crime or authorities must be paragons of sinless perfection before a sentence can properly be meted out. Otherwise, no one can properly serve in that position. Now, what he means is they must not be complicit. They must not be guilty of that very sin. They must be free from any association with the crime itself. And so that cuts them to the quick. Jesus did not make light of her sin. Neither did he expressly or by implication abolish the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. He did not even in so many words set aside the law which demanded the death penalty for offenses such as this. He was opposing these men who sought to pervert it. He showed them that they were not fit to execute the very law that they were so eager to carry out. John's account, I think, is understated in verse 9 when it says, but when they heard of it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. No one dared to take up this challenge. Every pretense of self-righteousness stands no chance before Jesus and his holy presence. They were overwhelmed by his holiness. They lacked the gall to press on and to cast the first stone. And it kind of reminds us of the effect that Jesus had on certain people. Like in John chapter 18, verse 6, the, the prison guards are drawn back, unable to arrest him. And then later, the soldiers would fall to their faces when they came to seize him in the garden. This is the effect that Jesus' holiness sometimes has on people. And so these men, starting with the oldest, began to leave. Now why the oldest? Well, perhaps they, they knew they had the longer record of sins. Or perhaps they were the first to become aware of their guilt. But you see, these self-righteous men had murder on their hearts. 
They wanted to kill Jesus. And they were willing to use this woman's shame as a mere tool to carry out that sinister plot. But they began to feel their shame in Jesus' holy presence. They knew they had no right to judge her and to be part of her execution. They also knew that they had been outflanked by Jesus once again. If they condemned this woman, they knew that they would be guilty of hypocrisy. But it was not just the consciences of these religious leaders. Everybody left. The whole crowd just left. James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary says this, Obviously, there was something in the gaze of the Lord Jesus Christ, or in the tone of his voice, or simply in the power of his presence that got through to these men unrepentant as they were, and left them powerless. Think of the efforts that they had gone through. Think of the plotting, yet they were destroyed in a moment when they were confronted by the God who masters circumstances. Jesus' response to this situation does not mean that there can never be justice on the human level by those in authority. This does not mean that no jury can ever condemn a criminal because the jurors are not perfectly sinless? As Calvin states, Christ is not forbidding sinners to do their duty in correcting the sins of others, but by this word he only reproves hypocrites who mildly flatter themselves and their vices but are excessively severe and even act the part of felons in censuring others. Unquote. Well, after this, after everybody left, we are told in the second half of verse 9 through verse 11, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And so we come to the final point of our text, and that is the justice and mercy of Jesus towards the woman's shame. Jesus wants to impress upon this woman the great favor that he's bestowing upon her, but also the great guilt of her accusers. So he says, has no one condemned you? The great sentence of condemnation, though it's demanded by the law of Moses, had not been pronounced against her by anybody. Jesus is shown here to have such great compassion on her, even though he was not naive about her sin. But that didn't make him callous or cold. He extends forgiveness to her by saying, neither do I condemn you. She was guilty of breaking the seventh commandment. And Jesus, it appears, was faced with this decision of either justice or mercy. But you see, to Jesus, this was a false dichotomy. Jesus did not lay aside either one. Jesus came to save, not to condemn, but in order to save and to be merciful, God's justice had to be fulfilled. And you see, this is the heart of the gospel. He says to every sinner who relies 
on him and his work for grace and mercy. Neither do I condemn you. And he is able to say this because of the cost that he paid on the cross for his people. Now we need to notice what Jesus is really claiming here. It's only God who can forgive sin. Jesus claims this authority. But to say he does not condemn her, the law's demand must be met. So how could both justice and mercy be satisfied? Well, the answer is the reason why Jesus came to this earth. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, came to this earth to become a man and yet without sin, remaining God first in order to fulfill the commandments for his people. See, we cannot fulfill the commandments. We fall miserably short because we are sinners and we're born with a sinful nature. Jesus came to fulfill the commitment of the commandments in thought, word, and deed. He came as our substitute. He did what was required of the law in perfect love for the Father and love for his neighbor. And thus he earned for his people a perfect righteous record. But he also came to make payment for the sins of his people. He took on our sin and our shame, the debt of our sins on the cross. He received the just payment that was due us through his suffering and his bleeding and his dying. He came as our substitute to take the punishment that we deserve. And then he rose again from the dead on the third day to prove who he was and that he had accomplished righteousness and atonement for our sins. And he had victory over death for us. And so all those who are born again, whose hearts have been changed, and who believe in who he is and what he came to do for their salvation, and turn from their sin, they're declared righteous before God. They're forgiven of all their sins. They're brought into God's family. They're united with the Godhead in fellowship forever. And they're given the gift of eternal life. Jesus, though, does not stand opposed to God's commandments. He saves by fulfilling them for us and receiving its judgment for our violations of it on the cross. That's how God's justice and mercy meet. He has achieved the law's demands for us and he's exhausted the penalty for us through his death. And this is how he could say to the woman, and this is how he can say to all of us who believe, I do not condemn you. The law was once over our heads like a threat. Like these Pharisees stood accusing this woman, but he knew he was going to accomplish through his life, death, and resurrection her salvation. He was going to fulfill justice and mercy for her and for all who would believe. But the scribes and the Pharisees did not go away forgiven. They departed condemned. Unless, of course, by God's grace, they would repent and believe later on. But you see, they were trusting in their own religious works, their own self-righteousness. Even when they were exposed by Jesus, they would not admit their sin or believe in Him or trust 
that God had to give them mercy through the sending of his son. We need to notice that Jesus' declaration not only did not condemn her, but that's not all he, he left her with. He didn't condone her sin. Notice, he says, go and from now on sin no more. See, he knew that he had saved her, but one of the chief pieces or evidence of being born again is not only believing in Christ, but repenting of sin. Repentance means taking a 180 degree turn away from sin towards righteousness. So Jesus does not say, leave your life of sin and then I will think about forgiving you. Were that the case, then all of us would be doomed. Titus 3.5 says, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He forgives on the basis of his saving work alone, but the result of being born again is true faith and repentance. See, we are forgiven in order that we might become holy. Jesus joins forgiveness with a call to new obedience. The law used to be over our heads as a threat, but now it's under our feet as a guide to holy living. And so true believers will want to turn from their sin and live for righteousness because of the great mercy they've been shown by God, because of the great sacrificial love of Jesus, and because they are new creatures created to be holy. So what? What does God want us to do with these truths from this text? What should we take away to apply to our lives? Well, let me give you three ways that you can apply this to your life. First of all, we need to see that apart from the grace of God, we are in the same position of this woman before God. We've committed many, many sins against his commandments, and he requires perfection. And the wages of sin is death. And the wages of sin is judgment. Judgment before God and judgment in hell forever. And so I ask you this first question. How have you responded to the law's condemnation of your sin? See, apart from Christ, we're all in the same position of this woman. Will you try to slink away under God's piercing gaze like these religious leaders? who were unwilling to admit their sin and their need for Christ's grace? Or will you humbly admit your sins and receive God's grace in Christ by faith? You see, Jesus is not opposed to the law. He created the law. It represents his character. It must be upheld. And its condemnation over all sin must be fulfilled. So the question is, will you admit that you cannot keep the law? Will you throw yourself upon the mercy and grace of Christ? Or will you refuse in your pride and try to rely on your own self-righteousness? Jesus came to fulfill the law for us and to receive its curse for us on the cross so that we would not be condemned. Remember what John said in John 17 or John 3, 17, he said, for God did not send 
his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So have you recognized your sins? And have you confessed them and placed your trust in his work alone for your salvation? Now, if you're a believer, the devil seeks to come and accuse you whenever you sin and drive you away from relying upon the grace of Christ. So we must respond when we sin by repenting and saying back to the devil, I'm worse than you accuse me to be, but Jesus has given me his righteous record and he's satisfied God's justice on the cross so I am no longer condemned because I am in Christ. He has exhausted the law's requirements and the law's penalty against my sin. Secondly, though, if you are a believer, you will continue to have a posture of repentance until you go to heaven. Jesus told this woman, from now on, sin no more. He was implying that she was to take a different path in her life. He's not implying that she could now be perfect, but that because she was a true recipient of God's grace, she would make a decisive turn from her old ways of sin and continue to seek to live for God's glory in holiness according to his commandments. You see, this will be the continual resolve of the believer. We are to hate sin and to seek to cease from it in all areas of our lives, in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds. Christ has declared us righteous, but he wants to see his righteousness ultimately fulfilled in us. And so I ask you, is it, as a believer, still your chief goal every day to sin no more and to pursue the commandments out of gratitude for the grace of God? How do you renew that desire to not want to sin anymore and live according to his laws? Well, by having a sober judgment of yourself, meaning you recognize you're a sinner and you're going to sin every day. And you keep confessing those sins and looking to what Christ has done already for your righteousness and forgiveness. Realizing how he took away your shame by becoming shame for you. The proper of response of mercy received is a desire to pursue purity. So, I ask you, are there areas of your life where you have become complacent about certain sins? Ask God to renew in you a resolve to sin no more and the grace to repent when you do. My third application is to consider from this text that believers will seek to exhibit the compassion and mercy of Christ toward other sinners. These religious leaders were without compassion. Why? Because they didn't see they needed it from God. They didn't need mercy from God. They didn't need a Savior to come and save them. They refused to receive 
God's grace in Christ and admit their great sin. And Satan is behind inspiring all kinds of judgmental, compassionless self-righteousness. And see, we as believers need to resist the devil's temptation to try to get us to think that we're better than other people, that we're superior to other people. No, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And what that means is we are all guilty. We are all doomed without Christ's mercy and his sacrificial life, death, and resurrection for our redemption. And to the degree that you recognize how much of a sinner you are and how deserving you are of God's wrath apart from the grace of Christ and how much you have appreciation for the compassion that God has shown you in Christ, to that degree, you will seek to be compassionate to others. We are to have compassion for non-believers who are slaves to sin. And we're to extend to them the hope and the grace of Christ, who alone can take away their shame and condemnation. We should oppose their sin, but we should look upon them with kindness and mercy and compassion. Now, there may be times when we are called upon in love to confront another believer's sin. But we must always heed the warning of Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. What kind of temptation do we, do we have to fight against in those circumstances? Well, we can easily become compassionless towards believers. We can easily succumb to the temptation of pride and self-righteousness. And so we need to develop a practice of searching out the logs in our own eyes before pointing out the specks in others. We're to be in a constant state of recognizing our tendency to be hypocrites. There will be times when we are called upon to judge sin. But as Jesus instructed, we're to judge with righteous judgment. And that means humbly being aware of our own sins with an attitude of continual repentance of our sins and faith in the gospel alone for our salvation. How do we foster a compassionate spirit? Well, it comes from practical experience. Confessing your sins every day and knowing that God has had compassion on you in providing for your forgiveness and righteousness. It comes from our communion with Jesus in his word and in prayer and in the sacraments. And it comes as we ask the Holy Spirit to give us the character of Christ his compassion. So may God give us these and other ways to respond to the truths from this text. Let's pray.